All right, good morning. How we doing? Good to see you. Hey, we told you, road trip, commercials, video, you know, clips from movies, that's what we're going to do this month. They mean next to nothing outside of you know what it's like to travel as a family, and it can be crazy, and that's a great example of one of those. We're glad you're here. You're here with us today in week five on a, ser- on a series that we're in called Road Trip, Where Is Your Family Headed? And we're looking at a lot of different dynamics related to God's design for families and, and how his word is so encouraging, giving us not only a roadmap, but giving us the help to course correct when we need that. So before we get going today, though, I wanted to share with you something that happened Friday night. Take a look at the screen. That is my son proposing to his girlfriend. And um, very, very cool. Jackson and Sky are actually in this service today. So we are so excited for them and so excited about how God has brought them together. And it was just a great time of not only them going through the day and these elements and then getting to finally take a knee on the beach there, but uh, Sky's family and our family joined them that night and just had... It was one of those things you just go, God, I don't think it could have been better. So we're grateful for that, grateful for them, grateful for their future, and um, looking forward to how God's going to keep working in their lives. And they set me up well today. We're talking about marriage. So great job. Thank you for the illustration uh, on getting uh, engaged on the same weekend. It's very good. You have a worship folder, and in it you have some notes if you want to get those out. Have those ready. That'll help us kind of track today. And also, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in the book of Genesis to start. I'm going to have you be moving a little bit through your Bibles today. But Genesis chapter 2 is where we'll be in just a minute. Now, in this series, I've mentioned that I want to give you just some kind of resources on a weekly basis. One of those reminders has been an event we're doing two weeks from now called Family Forum. And it's kind of like this mini parenting conference on a Sunday afternoon. We have four seminars. You get to pick two to attend. And today, out on the patio, on the plaza, I'm sorry, uh, Larry's going to be up there, or Karen. And they've even got a synopsis of the seminars. We'd love for you to get signed up, especially if you want child care. Because our child care is going to close a week from tomorrow on Monday the 29th because we need to get child care workers lined up, kids in the right rooms, all that business. So if you're planning on going, get signed up between now and next Monday if you want child care, especially for that event, and that'll get you set up. Again, a great event. If you're not raising kids right now, great event to not only invite someone to pay for them. It's $10 a person. It's not expensive, but pay for them to come, have them sign up, and we'd love to have just a great entry point opportunity for them. I also told you that weekly I'm going to bring you a book uh, just as a recommendation. There, are, The problem is with so many books today on Christian parenting, Christian marriage, you don't know where to start. So that's my only hope in this is to give you some handles. Probably to me one of the top three marriage books I've ever read is this, Love and Respect. And so it's especially fitting for today. It's in your notes, but in your notes actually is the follow-up book to that. Same author, Emerson Egricks, and it's Love and Respect in the Family. So he's taken these principles, this is the tagline, the respect parents desire, the love children need. So he took the same principles from this book about husband and wife and marriage and applied them to the family, and I think you're really going to appreciate it. It's a great read, and it really connects some dots within that world, especially of... um, of our marriage as it relates to our whole of our family. And then lastly, look inside your notes and you'll see at the bottom there this uh, table talk question. Just a a thoughtful idea. Every week we are not giving you 17 things to talk about, just one, but something to have as a conversation. And this week what it talks about is really what our, our topic is today is model marriage. 
model marriage. And it's asking the question of people that you see in their marriages. And let's say this from the very beginning. You will not find a perfect marriage to model yours after. They don't exist. No one in this room today is living out God's design for their marriage perfectly. Today's message is not going to be about that. And you won't find a couple like that to model after, but you will find some healthy marriages. And you will find some couples that you would say, what about their oneness is something that we want to translate into our relationship? And that's kind of the point of the question. Joanna and I have been so incredibly blessed by having great mentor couples in our lives. And I don't mean mentoring in the strict sense of the word of sit down and have a a Bible study once a week. I just mean people we get to watch, people we get to do life with, notes that we're making about the way they treat each other, the way they treat their kids. And for us to say, God, you've given us some great handles of what we should be doing, flesh and blood examples that we can in turn replicate in our family. So that's kind of where we're going. Let me um, lay this foundation today when we talk about, we've talked about a lot of family dynamics. Today we kind of go to the hub. I really believe if you think of a family as a wheel, that your marriage is the hub in the middle. God's design provided for children being raised in a home where a dad and a mom loved them and loved each other. So we're going to look at today as God's design. Marriage is the foundation of a family and provides the context for which children see healthy relationships modeled. For children to know what God's design for marriage looks like, they see it best when they see it lived out in front of them in their own parents' lives. Now I want to say from the very, very beginning today, there's a lot of us for a lot of reasons that are not living according to the design we're going to look at. And I want to say this. I have some words for you at the end of our time. I want to always keep in this great tension. On the one hand, we want to know from Scripture, God, what is your intent? What is your design? What is your purpose? Today we'll even look at what is your fuel for keeping a marriage moving in the right direction. But I never want to lose the fact as well that for a lot of us, that's not something we're living in. And I want to talk about what God can do in your life, in those relationships to bring hope. So what I'm going to say is, know that, know I'm getting there and hang on, rather than building an angry case against me this whole time. And then to hear me go, oh, okay, okay, so I'm not as mad as I was, okay? Hold on, and, uh, and we'll get there before we're done today. Let me say this then to the different stages that are in the room. Number one, if you're here today and you're currently married, begin to model, live after these things we're going to look at today. If you're here today, you're currently married, but you don't want to be. I'm not naive enough to think that, that those folks in those stages are in this room. I know you are. I want you to listen really well today. I want you to know that there is hope for the relationship that in to your mind is causing the greatest amount of drag in your life, the greatest amount of weight. There's hope that God can bring correction. For those of you that are not currently married yet but want to be, can I say, I've been saying this throughout the series, I'm more glad than any of the other groups that are in the room today, I'm glad that you're here. Because I want you to begin to embrace these realities. I want you to say, God, you get to build the foundation of my life. You get to determine how my relationships are going to look like, and so I want to know this now so I know what I can build upon and anticipate rather than way down here where the damage is done and now try to figure it out. So I'm really stoked that you're here today and in that stage. Or maybe you're here today, you're not currently married, and you're not interested in ever getting married. 
I'm really glad you're here today. And I want to encourage you in the way, in the attitude that the Apostle Paul had. He loved the gift of singleness and what it gave him was an undivided devotion to Jesus. I want you to love that. I want you to live in that. There is no biblical mandate you must get married. Please don't understand that. Don't infer that from what we talk about today. And instead, think of what are ways you can be an encouragement to married couples around you to live out these principles we're going to look at today. So keep this in mind. It's in your notes. It's on the screen. Live out God's design for your marriage according to his purpose and dependent upon his fuel. I'll explain in a minute. Number one in your notes, God's design for marriage is oneness. God's design for marriage is oneness. Here's how this came to me. I was uh, tasked with the idea of writing what I guess you'd call a marriage class, a marriage enhancement that we did at High Desert Church. I'm the family pastor. I should be involved in this. So me and another pastor were working on it. And I was tasked with the first class of basically laying this foundation for what is marriage. And I was trying to come up with a synonym. What was another word-for-word idea that, that communicated and, and explained what marriage was? Think about that just for a moment. That's not easy. Of all that marriage includes, try to think about one word that communicates that. And I had a struggle. I had to process and think and pray and read. And I remember coming across something I was reading and this word oneness popped up. And I thought, there it is. And I think it actually communicates it incredibly well in some ways, maybe better than the word marriage itself. Based on what we're going to look at. Your Bibles are open to Genesis 2. Here's this foundational passage we're going to see is huge for the rest of all of Scripture. It begins in the garden. The context is this. God has literally marched all of creation in front of Adam. He's doing so not only for Adam to have a sense of what God has created and to name the animals, but then to also realize, we're going to read very quickly, there's nobody like him. At this stage, Genesis 2, Adam is alone. Chapter 2, verse 20. So the the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, the man's rib, and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now look at verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Moses would have been writing this literally centuries later. He wasn't uh, alive Um, you know, observer, witness to what was happening in the garden. And as he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was writing these words, then he parenthetically pulls out. Adam and Eve had no parents. They would not need to know verse 24, but he does it for our sake. And he says four incredibly vital things. Read it again. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. In your notes, so we discover from this passage, God's design for marriage is one man and one woman committed to one another for their lifetimes. That's God's design. That's what he put together. In this particular verse, chapter 2, verse 24, there's four fundamental things you see, four elements. Number one, a husband and wife are the parties involved. Number two, they leave their families of origin. There is a shift in that allegiance. They are united into a new kind of relationship. And this new relationship is marked by being that of one flesh or oneness. 
This is a, a picture of, of kind of how it happened to me. I remember uh, I was reminded this last week. I did a wedding last Saturday. And in the wedding, the couple did a unity candle. And if you're familiar with that, it's just a really cool symbolic picture of two lives kind of becoming one. Well, it reminded me of our wedding, Joanna and mine. When we got married, we had gone through like you did. We did a rehearsal the day before, and we know what to do. We walk up, and and in the unity candle, we also had that element in our service. We practiced the whole thing and knew what we were doing. It was great. But probably like you might have experienced, there was a certain part of our wedding ceremony that everything went blank. I had no idea what I was going to do. So it was that part. It's the unity candle. We come walking up. The the two outer candles have been lit already. And now we're going to take those candles. We're going to light this new one. And the way we had rehearsed it the night before, we'd each take our own candle, blow them out. Joanna would hand me the candles and I would put them back in their places. Well, we're in real time, real ceremony, people like you staring at people like us up on this stage. And we're, we, we do this, we kind of light the one, we both blow ours out, and she hands me her candle, and I look at her like, and? <laughs> what, what do you want me to do? Oh, you're giving that to me. And then I'm like, I don't know what to do. So I take her candle, I take my candle, kind of look around, look at the pastor, he's like, mm, you know. I'm like, thanks, Bob, no help at all, you know. So I don't know what to do, so I just set them on the table. And then we walk back like nothing ever happened. Now, you have stories like that. Your wedding never goes how you plan. And we were fortunate. It was probably the only blunder, obviously my own. But within that, what actually was cool, for the rest of the ceremony, all that you saw up on this table was one lit candle. There were no other candles that you could go back to kind of think in a weird way, my blender actually portrays what marriage is intended to be better than what we had practiced. Because that's what God's design is. There is a new oneness, there is a new stickiness, there is a new thing created when you make this covenant to one another. We'll talk about that in just a second. So a couple of really important things about Genesis 2.24. First off, it's quoted four times in the New Testament. Two times when Jesus is teaching on marriage in the Gospels and two times in Paul's letters to the churches. And this foundational passage is so important because though the Bible could continue to reiterate things like roles or things like how a, a, a marriage ought to function related to communication, it always keeps coming back to this basic reality. Husband and wife committing for their lifetimes uh, in, in, that, in this relationship. And so we see that again and again. It all comes out of Genesis 2.24. Now I want you to hear this today. I'm not bringing up this passage today as some proof of why a particular political or moral view is superior to another. It's not my purpose at all. I want you to bring, understand this. I'm bringing it up to you today because you cannot alter something that you did not design. That's why I've never been concerned personally. You have reasons to be concerned. I've never been concerned personally in our political playground where there's been so much talk of redefining marriage. I've never been shaken by that because you don't get to change something you didn't make. Only the designer himself gets to do that. So for me, no matter what may happen around us, the reality is God said, I put it together this way. This is its design. Live it out. And so we walk in that. We walk in that truth. Now, if what I just said, as I'm talking about this reality of God's design, if that gets you all kinds of excited, because of the political fray that we're in, because of the moral issues that we're walking in today, 
then I want to challenge you at the same moment. If you're more interested in the political war zone of marriage than you are interested in living out that design in your own marriage, you've got problems. That's not the point. It's to get all upset about how marriage ought to be, but your own marriage doesn't look anything like what God designed it to be. And by the way, if you're wondering if that's true, just ask your spouse. They'll be glad to tell you. So keep this in balance. This is God's design, and we simply are called to walk in it. Number two in your notes today, moving from design to purpose. God's purpose for marriage is covenantal commitment. God's purpose for marriage is covenantal commitment. Now you're going to take your Bible, you're going to move now all the way to the back of that same former covenant, Old Testament, Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. It, let me set up the context where we're moving there. Malachi chapter 2. In Malachi, what's happened is this. We're so far in the, the process of the nation of Israel, now actually the southern kingdom of Judah. What's happened is both kingdoms, they divided. Both were conquered by outside enemy nations that God said, your unfaithfulness to me now means this kind of correction in your lives. The southern kingdom has been moved off to Babylon. Babylon's overthrown by Persia. Persia's in charge. Persia lets them go back. So now this group of people, many of them were never even born in the land. They finally get to go back to the land of their ancestors. They go back and they inhabit Jerusalem. By the time Malachi is written, the walls have already been rebuilt around Jerusalem. That happens in the book of Nehemiah. And now the people are settling back into the city. And as they're beginning to find this connection and community, one thing you have to know, they're still ruled by an outside foreign nation. They're not autonomous. They're not their own. But within that, they're crying out to their God to listen to them. They're crying out to him to bring change. And what's happening in the book of Malachi, there's a sequence of four or five arguments and Malachi finds himself, the prophet finds himself kind of as the spokesperson between these two groups of people, the people of Judah and Yahweh himself. And that's where we pick it up. Malachi chapter 2, verse 13. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altars, altar with tears. You weep and you wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings and accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? What's happened? It is because the Lord is witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. This is a powerful passage. God is in essence saying this. I'm not interested in your religious faithfulness because it's undone by your marital unfaithfulness. You want to live in a world that continues to do all these offerings and sacrifices before me. God says, I'd just like you to actually focus at home. Because what the people were doing in the city of Jerusalem is they were giving up on marriage. Across the board, we don't know the exact reason. We don't know how it was happening. Were they trading in uh, newer models for older ones? I don't know what it was. But at the end of the day, people were giving up on marriage. Primarily men. That's who's talked about here giving up on the wife of their youth. 
So as they were forsaking their wives, God says, I'm not interested in your religious duties. I am interested in your marital fidelity. I want you to hear this really clearly today. God cares about your marriage. We have this interesting way when things get hard, when things get rocky, of compartmentalizing our our worlds and being very, very, um, I was going to say being very good lawyers about how we define things, but then the lawyers in the room get offended. So the best way I can say it is we talk ourselves out of things. Is that okay? Does that work? Okay. Lawyers, forgive me. Okay. So within this whole context, what we begin to do is we begin to think that God kind of doesn't care about this. Or, or if God really knew what was going on. Here's what I want to make so clear as we walk through today. You will think you are the exception. Of the challenges you're facing in your marriage, you will think, but I have a unique case. I have unique circumstances. And I will tell you, as long as you keep thinking that way, you're saying that the sovereign God of the universe never saw what was going to happen in your world when he put this together. And I want to tell you, just like the song we sang today, he is high above it all. He knows. Not only does he know through the lens of truth, he knows through the lens of grace. I think you could make a case that there might be multiple things scripturally you could look at that would say, this is God's purpose for marriage. But I want to offer this one today. And I think this passage bears it out. That when we live out our vows, when we remain faithful to the person we promise to do life with for our lifetimes, we actually are experiencing a taste of what God says when he says, I'm committed to you. A covenant to not give up on you. A covenant to forgive and to keep moving forward with you. Covenantal commitment is a powerful purpose in marriage because we realize when we want to bail, we stick with it and we see God bless. And we see God, that's what you do for us. In your notes, look at that last phrase, so be on your guard and do not be faithful in your notes. Notice the active role. Notice the active role it requires for you to stay focused and faithful in your marriage. It's a military phrase uh, concerning watchmen or a posted guard. That's literally what the word means. Stay, keep watch, stay focused, pay attention. You don't do that by sitting on the couch, just watching life go by. You have to take things with intentionality and say, I need to prepare. I need to be ready and stay focused on this marriage, our marriage becoming all that God wants it to be. Pay attention and be on the lookout for what would cause you to potentially be unfaithful to your spouse. Here's what the passage is saying. It's going to be hard. Man, I I hope, I'm so glad that Jackson and Skye are in this service today. Because I want them to hear from the very beginning, it's going to be hard. That's not what marriage is. It's just some skip through the fields. It is going to be challenging, but it's going to be worth it. As we continue to say, God, we want to learn what you have for us, that we only learn in this unique relationship called marriage. So be on guard to keep yourself from being overthrown by your selfishness, or by your anger, or by your neglect, or by your lack of forgiveness towards your spouse. But here's the great news, it's always a choice. 
You always get to choose to engage and invest in your marriage or not. You get to choose to call upon God's strength and grace to keep your covenantal commitment even when you don't want to. And we experientially come to understand what it means for God to say, I love you with a covenantal love. We get a taste of that when we love our spouse. Remember when you said these words? For better, for worse. For richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health. As long as we both shall, what? Live. I'll never forget the moment. I remember it like I could, I could, well, if I could draw, I'd draw it for you. I can't, but I mean, I could see everything about it. I was walking through our bedroom and Joanna was just flipping channels and she was flipping channels and a show came up that was at the time, they're, I think, relatively popular of these kind of wedding shows, like we're getting ready this week for the wedding kind of thing. And, and the specific clip, as I walked through the room, the specific clip was a, a, a Uh, going to be groom and bride and they're going through the rehearsal and this is how they said it with this kind of big grin on their face and they promise to do these things as long as they both shall love. And I remember walking through the room and hearing that and going, whoa, 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 what? That didn't sound right. I said, could you rewind that? It was on a DVR so she rewound it and we listened to it again, as long as we both shall love. And they said it with that kind of Cheshire cat grin, kind of like, we're so clever. And I'm listening to that, and it was the powerful thing of what the difference that one letter can make. Because in our American culture, love is so feelings-based. If they get married on Saturday, but don't love each other on Tuesday, they can be out. Because that's kind of what we've come to do. And maybe, to be real honest, maybe that was the whole point. I'm about this committed to you. And as soon as I don't feel it, I'm out. And then we can both say we were true to what we said. What a powerful difference of one letter. As long as we both shall live. That's the kind of commitment that we made to one another. It's the kind of commitment God wants us to walk in. By the way, don't miss the one line in the passage that has to do with the power of influence of your marriage Related to your kids. Look at that line. What does one God seek? Godly offspring. In your notes, your marriage is an essential piece to the kind of home that is conducive for the future generation of Jesus' church. That you're raising to want to follow him too. Not just in regard to their own marriages, but for every aspect of their lives. Now I want you to hear this. I remember there was a day in my ministry development. Usually, I think it was when I was a youth pastor. I was young. Joanna and I, relatively newly married, might have had one or two very small children at this point. But I remember people saying to me, I was working with their students, but the parents, they would say to me, Todd, we're just staying in it for the kids. We're just staying together for the kids. And I remember being hypercritical of those kinds of comments. Like, are you kidding me? That's what your marriage is just kind of, you know, kind of um, watered down to is just... This kind of, we're going to play house until, you know, our kids graduate, you know, get out of high school and we'll go. And then we'll, we'll separate. And I want to tell you, I was very critical of those kinds of statements. Then I became a family pastor. And for the next 14 years, I got to deal face to face with the fallout of parents who wouldn't even make that commitment. And I got to tell you, 
I changed my tune. It's worth it to stay together for your kids. It really is. There is so much fallout. I could have brought all these stats today of how hard and challenging it is to be children of divorce. And I've watched it. I got to watch the fallout in the next days, weeks, and months, and years to come with those kids acting out what they couldn't understand and couldn't process. I don't think it's that unnoble of a thing anymore because the wreckage is so extreme. Now, I want to say this too. In the process of you just staying together for the kids, it gives God a chance to do something in your heart. It gives God a chance to do something to actually bring to life what you thought was dead. And so now when I hear couples say that, I say, okay, let's start with that. And let's see what God wants to do in your lives along the way where at least you're providing that kind of continuity at home. Now, I told you this earlier. If you're here today and you're divorced, you're really not liking me right now. I told you, hang on. I have words for you, I promise. Just hold on. Number three in your notes today, God's fuel for marriage is love and respect. God's fuel for marriage is love and respect. Last time we're flipping our Bibles today, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Remember we said that's in the New Testament, go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Turn to chapter 5. What would happen is this. Couples would come into my office or an individual who's married would come into my office and they would say, you know, Todd, and I'd ask questions. What are you you dealing with right now? What are you working through? And as they would unpack that for me, it was almost as though as I set my Bible on the table, my Bible just flops open to Ephesians 5. Because the symptoms all look so different, but at the end of the day, when you come down here to the root, what is the issue? Husbands who don't sacrificially love, wives who don't honor and respect. It's amazing how so many things boil back down to that issue. So here's this pivotal passage, Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husband as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Okay, we, we took an entire Sunday when we were working through the book of Ephesians last fall just to look at this passage. So we're not going to do it justice today. And for some of us, as soon as you heard, ladies, as soon as you heard the word submit, you stiffened up. That's a dirty word. And I know why it is, because for some it's been interpreted as that's code for doormat. He's the king of the roost, you just do what he says. That's not at all what this passage is saying. Instead today, hear this passage. Hear what I want you to hear. Not so much as here's the have-tos. Here instead, look at what this does. Look at the source of motivation this creates in your marriage. This is why I call it the fuel. This is why it's the fuel to your marriage. Here's the basic essence. This is the picture that Paul is using. He's saying marriage looks a lot like Jesus and his church. 
And it's intended to. This is your marriage. And that's an incredibly just kind of almost weighty thing to think about. Your marriage should look like what it is for the church to follow Christ. What it is for Christ to sacrificially love his church. That's the picture this ought to express to your world. And so within that, look now at these dynamics. Look at what happens When a wife will live this way to her husband, look at what this happens when a husband will live this way to his wife. Here's what we're saying. Wives, demonstrated by how the church responds to Christ, submit to your husband's leadership over you and over your family. And by doing so, watch this, you demonstrate an amazing amount of respect and honor to him. The kind of respect and honor that he deeply desires. When we were going through this passage in the fall, I shared a man's secret that I'm going to share again today. And it's simply this. Ladies in the room, we are incredibly insecure. We are incredibly, we don't like to talk about it. We don't like to admit it, but it's absolutely true. We are incredibly insecure. And so here's, watch now, watch the genius of God's design and what he's put together. Watch what he's created within this nuclear relationship. Watch what happens when a wife will say, a husband will get up for work and and whatever he's got for the do for the day. He will feel like a hundred people are against him. But when he knows that his wife is in his corner, he can get up and face the day. There's something about that kind of loyalty, about that kind of honor that gives him the fuel he can keep going. It's amazing. Husbands, conversely, if that's what wives are called to do, look at your call. Husbands, the Christ, as Christ loved the church, so live a life of sacrificial love towards your wife that expresses itself in the following way. I say this to husbands all the time. This is the Ephesians 5 concept. It has nothing to do with what you say. It has everything to do with how you live. Your wife's needs come before your own ten times out of ten. That's what sacrificial love looks like. That's how it manifests itself in your relationship. Your wife doesn't think you love her. She knows it. Because you keep expressing it. You keep putting her ahead of yourself. Now watch this. Why have we called this the fuel? Why have we called this the fuel of marriage? Watch this reality. It's in your notes. Let me give it to you so you get it. Because what husband whose wife consistently shows him honor and respect doesn't want to sacrificially love his wife the way that Jesus loves the church? She meets this unique need in his life. What husband doesn't want to keep loving his wife this way? And and wives, what wife whose husband consistently demonstrates a sacrificial love that puts her needs ahead of his own What wife doesn't want to show respect and honor to that man as the church does in the way it follows Jesus? It's not a have to, it's a want to. It changes something. It provides this internal fuel in your marriage to say, you know what? I don't have to love Joanna sacrificially because of the way that she so respects and honors me. I want to. And hopefully she could say the same words. Because of the way that Todd puts my needs above his own, I want to respect and honor him. This creates this kind of internal fuel within your marriage that gives you the ability to keep putting one foot in front of the next. There can be all kinds of chaos going on around you with your kids, with the job, with in-laws, whatever, finances, name it. 
But if this thing is going on right, it's amazing how you are hopeful and how you are positive that you can keep going. Conversely, there could be nothing wrong in your world. And when this part isn't going right, when she's not honoring and respecting, when he's not sacrificially loving one or both of them, you feel like you just want to cash in. This is so hard. Here's what I want to encourage you with today. This passage, nowhere within it, does it say once your spouse starts doing their part, then do yours. Wives, it never says once your husband begins to sacrificially love you, then start respecting him. Husbands, it never says, once your wife begins to respect you, now put her needs above your own. It simply says, husbands, wives, now. And it may feel like this gut-wrenching one step after the next, day by day. But I want to encourage you with this. We've always talked about how your marriage can be viewed like a triangle, here you are on this side, here your spouse is over here, God's at the top. And, and as you are growing towards God, you're interestingly growing towards one another. And within that concept, God has to be a very viable candidate, a very viable member within your marriage. And what you do, you don't do because your spouse earns it. You don't do because they're good enough. You don't do because of well, they treated you yesterday. You do because God says, this is what my purpose and design of fuel are. Live according to it. Watch me bless you. Some of you will not put that foot forward today. Whatever who you are in the relationship of either respect or sacrificial love, you will not do it because you're convinced it's not going to change anything. I just want to offer this up. Put one step of obedience forward and watch what God begins to do. It's all I can say. I can't promise anything, but I can say one thing you can know. Every night you can put your head on the pillow knowing You've done what God's asked you to do in your marriage, no matter what is true of your spouse. There's something valuable about that, and it gives God the opportunity again to bring healing and to bring hope. I told you I had words today. Let me finish with this thought. If you're here today and you're not living out God's design for marriage, it could be for a host of reasons. Maybe you're here today and you're divorced. Maybe you're here today and you're a single parent. Maybe you're here today and you're cohabitating. Cohabitating is just a big fancy word for we're playing house. We're not married, but we're acting like it in the way that we're living together. And I would just put that out to you today. What you're missing is the most essential ingredient of covenantal commitment. It's a big deal to God. Maybe you're married to someone who isn't a Jesus follower. The Bible calls that being unequally yoked. And I didn't need to say it. You know the tension that brings or maybe you're married to someone who is a Jesus follower, but one or both of you are just not living out God's design in your marriage. I want to give you some thoughts before we finish today. What's true about all these examples, they all might be true that they're not living out this d- design that God has put for marriage, but they are doing so for a host of reasons. They're not all the same. There's very different li- re- uh, levels of culpability within all those examples I just gave. So I want you to hear this as we walk this through. Some of you are in that situation because of your own disobedience. Here's what I want you to hear from me today. There's hope. You can course correct. You can ask God for forgiveness. You can ask that person for forgiveness. And you can do a 180 and walk a new way. 
Maybe you're in this situation today and it's not about really your, your decision. It was decisions made that affected you. A spouse who just said, I'm out. It's a whole different ballgame. And so as a result of that, though you're dealing with the devastation, you don't have that same kind of responsibility. But you have the mess. I get that. You have the mess you have to clean up. So I want you to hear this. If that's true for you today on either of those things, and you're kind of feeling like, Todd, we're not living out God's design. There's no hope for us. Here's what I want you to clearly hear today. There is absolutely hope for you. Here's how the hope plays out for you personally. I love the Psalms. I love them deeply because they are gut level, honest, real, where psalmists could cry out to God and say, God, where are you? God, I feel deserted. God, I feel hopeless. God, I feel like I have no strength. God, come and deliver. And I tell people all the time who are struggling in whatever season of life they're in, find yourself in the Psalms and let them become your prayers to a God who is listening and a God who cares. When it comes to your children, we've read a lot of things today related to marriage and your kids. When it comes to children, remember what we've said already in this series, God will honor your half. Don't throw up your hands in hopelessness. God will honor what you are investing, what you are putting into those young lives. And the other thing, remember we said a couple weeks ago, you have allies. Allies here at Trinity Church, allies at other places in the family of God that you can say, would you come alongside of me and help me in this process? It's challenging enough with two parents. It's brutal with one. And man, I hope. I hope for those of us that aren't in that situation, we would say, God, I'm just praying for a way I can be an encouragement to a single parent. Praying for a way I could be a help because it is a tough gig. These are things that God is still in the process of doing. He's working out and you are not alone. The statement that we started with today that we come back to again as we finish up is this. Live out God's design for your marriage according to his purpose and dependent upon his fuel. Here's how I want us to finish today. I wanted to do something we don't ever do. So if you're a guest today, this is not normal for us. I wanted to finish by taking a moment to pray for the marriages in this room. Not all of us are married. That's great. But for those who are, I know this is challenging. And I want to pray that God gives you the grace and the strength to keep putting one foot in front of the next. So if you're here today and you're married, would you stand up? you're here today, you're married, would you stand up? And, and if your spouse is next to you, grab their hand. If your spouse isn't there, it's okay. I just don't want to pray for you. But if your spouse is here today, grab their hand and let me pray. Father God, I want to thank you for everyone in this room today. Thank you for all the different stages and places that we're at. But today, on this day, when we have focused our attention around marriage, I want to especially pray for the married couples in this room. God, they are all over the spectrum as far as their encouragement or their discouragement, as far as their hope or their hopelessness. For some, God, they're here today and they would just say, God, I am so incredibly blessed by this person you've given me as a gift in my life. And others would say, God, I am dying. And my marriage seems to be the greatest culprit in it. We are all over that spectrum today. And so rather than worrying about the spectrum, We worry, we focus our attention mainly on you and the fact of how desperately we need you. We need you for our marriages to be who you, what you designed them to be. 
And so we offer ourselves to you today. God, whether it be about design issues that we're struggling with, whether it be about our purpose of living out covenantal commitment, whether it be about our fuel and how we're maybe not respecting or or instead giving sacrificial love. God, whatever may be this issue within our marriage today, would you bring healing to that? Where there's encouragement, would you grow encouragement? Where there's discouragement, would you turn the tide? And would you give these couples the sense of hope to keep putting one foot in front of the next? Thank you for the gift, truly what it is, the gift of marriage. We're grateful for the way that you have blessed us with it. We love you. Thank you for this day. And we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.